Hello, everybody. Today on the show, we have the impressive Antonia Wade, who is the Global Chief Marketing Officer for PwC. Antonia really has had an impressive career, having had key leadership positions in organizations like Capita, Thomson Reuters, and Accenture. She's also just become a published author, talking about how to transform the B2B customer journey. And she really does share some great tips on the episode here. Now, the show is proudly sponsored by two amazing organizations, the Marketing Skills Trust, that looks after worthy causes in our industry, and the Marketing Lounge Partnership, who's a CRM and loyalty tech expert agency. Alrighty, over to the show. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Places Will Go show with your hosts, Mark and myself, Richie. Uh, today, we have a wonderful guest, um, not just wonderful, an impressive and formidable marketing leader, Antonia Wade on the show. Welcome, Antonia. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. Uh, well, look, I'm not going to let you off that easy. Um, I'm going to tell our viewers a little bit more about Antonia. So she is currently the Global Chief Marketing Officer for PwC. I would say an incredible position where she leads marketing in over 55 countries around the world for the group. Now, previous to PwC, she was the CMO at Capita, which is a $4 billion consulting, digital transformation, and business services company with over 60,000 employees. Now, look, just to give you a sense of her role there, she looked after over 150 brands and just shy of 200 websites. So, no easy, uh, easy pickings, I guess. But look, before Capita, she was with Thomson Reuters and then Accenture. So Antonia really does come with a huge pedigree for marketing transformations. And the icing on the cake is that Antonia just recently published a new book called Transforming the B2B Buyer Journey on sale right now at all major bookstores. So do pick up your copy. There we go. Plug, plug, plug. Anyway, <laughs> without further ado, let's dive right in. Welcome, Antonia, once again to the show. Okay. Fabulous, everyone, Antonia. Um, you are all those impressive things, but you are also a mother with a small child at home, you said, might, might come in, because it's a teacher strike in the UK today. Um, so tell us a little bit about you know, where you are, who's at home, what's, what's going on? Yeah, so um, thank you. Uh, well, I live in London, which I think if you do a global role is a very helpful place to be. I was actually on the West Coast last week uh, visiting some of our um, alliance partners at Adobe and Salesforce. And I have to say the 4am starts to do a global role when you're on the West Coast is a pretty brutal, whereas uh, London, London at least, you're kind of in the middle of everything. Um, so yeah, I live in North London. I actually have two children, uh, a, a sort of aspiring teenager uh, and a slightly younger one, a very large uh, cat and a very small dog uh, and an amazing yeah. husband. Um, and, you know, when I'm not uh, working and traveling, I am a good cook, a very average tennis player and uh i otherwise spend time with the family playing games watching movies and just generally spending time with friends and that's re me really uh but i yeah i mean it's it's interesting um i often get questions about work-life balance um and i definitely um am somebody who is in the zone doing what I'm doing. So uh, it's very rare that anyone in my team gets an email at the weekends, for example, that's for uh, my family. Um, and so, yeah, it's, that's, that's kind of me, really. How wonderful. Ref <laughs> I, I, would, I wouldn't say so at all. I mean, you know, globetrotter into family life, into work life. Um, 
but more so than that, I mean, I don't know how you find time in the gaps for writing and becoming a published author as well. So tell us a little bit about the book. What's How did that fit into your busy schedule? Well, it was quite funny, actually, because um, I had a period of time off between my last job and this one, about three, uh, three months kind of uh, leave thing. And uh, my husband was like, please don't be in the house with nothing to do. You're going to drive me absolutely insane and start loads of projects and give me a to-do list that's massive. Like, give yourself a project. <laughs> so actually because of him that I did it um, and a, a colleague of mine actually at PwC had recommended this kind of course that you do which is sort of uh, about how to uh, write a, a book and it was a three-month course so it's like okay well that's perfect um, so I embark on this book and you know the idea was you know you get from nothing to a book within three months but I mean of course you don't I mean you get to a sort of skeleton sort of start of a book um, but about Four weeks into it, um, a friend of mine phoned me up and said, oh, you know, a publisher's come to me and uh, asked if I would do a book on B2B marketing. I don't have time to do it, but I know you're writing one. Can I put you in touch? So with a very embryonic idea about what I was doing, I already had a publishing contract. So that kind of like, maybe that sort of epitomizes some of my core qualities, high ambition for myself, but then also uh, I always do what I say that I will do. Um, and so then I had to see it through, even though I have to say, as I took this job, um, the idea of then completing another 50,000 words, <laughs> it's an onerous task. So, um, but, you know, I made the commitment, so I got it done, but I did push the uh, publishing deadlines back a few times. Um, in terms of what the book's about, um, you know, it's, it's basically, as I say in the introduction, it's the book that I wish that I'd had when I was a sort of senior manager uh, in my career. Um, and what I've tried to do is distill all of the learnings that I've had, good and bad, the great advice that I've had from the people that I've worked with um, into a, a kind of book that I hope is a helpful offer to people in business to business marketing. One of the things that I observed is that there's not actually that much for B2B marketers and certainly not much written by practitioners. Often they're written by academics or agencies. And so I just felt like I had a little bit of been there, done that scars that I could uh, share with others. Um, and just a sort of fundamental premise of the book. So, uh, you know, there's this kind of concept of a marketing funnel, which I fundamentally think is unhelpful for B2B marketers. Um, we find, you know, the idea that there's a sort of single person or group of people going through a series of rational decision-making uh, is it's just not true. Um, in fact, in a recent survey that we did uh, for professional services, um, any individual executive can be involved in up to 12 purchases in any given year. So the idea that they're making single decisions on single, it's just, it isn't true. Um, and actually about 15 people are involved in every B2B purchasing decision for the types of services that we sell. So you're also marketing to lots of different people who have lots of varying uh, expertise in the thing that they're buying, you know, from procurement to finance to tech to then the kind of experts who are leading it. So what it does is it lays out a framework um, and then it, it, within the framework, uh, I talk about how do you think about what your target addressable market is because it probably changes through the process. What's the right content channels and metrics for each part of the framework? And the metrics bit's important because again, in B2B, you quite often get this paradigm of, you know, people were saying, well, we need to take something new to market or no one knows we sell this thing, but then they try and measure it in leads. So you're kind of fundamentally using the wrong measurement tool for the for the wrong job, if you will. And then I use that via journey framework to talk about how do you develop marketing strategy with insights at its heart? How do you think about investments and where you put your investments? I think it's very unhelpful debate going on at the moment for B2B about this sort of 
perceived trade-off between brand and lead or demand generation marketing when actually uh, we find that um, the power of your brand makes can make a huge difference in the buy don't buy uh, point of the process so actually the value of brand matters the whole way through the funnel and actually drives loyalty and pricing as well and it's just doing a different thing for you depending on where you are in that in the framework um, and then i finish it out by talking a bit about you know how you know this the particular b2b the relationship between marketing and sales and how do you think about that differently in a more modern way um and end with a reasonably provocative suggestion that actually the best B2B companies uh, will move to where some of the best B2C companies now are, which is marketing will set the client experience and sales will service it. Wow. That was a tour de force. Um, and I think that was superbly helpful. Like, I think a number of people I'm going to immediately recommend it to. <laughs> Seems you. like it fills a gap. And also congratulations to have written a proper book as opposed to uh, a chat GPT supported book which is of course um where where things are getting very very yeah i laugh with people because they say to me oh you know will you write another book and i definitely that if i write another book it's in retirement gin and tonic in hand and it'll be some kind of you know bunk buster or thriller or something <laughs> it's it this is all of my knowledge <laughs> in one book done <laughs> Well, you know, then I've heard people say that before and they get the itch. Darla Richie, she's done well. I think she has in mind potentially to do a second one potentially around the show. We'll see. But um, you said something about, you know, I ambition and I, I see things through, I get things done. Uh, I mean, you don't get to the type of rules you've got without being ambitious, but, you know, but in a good way. Where do you think that level of ambition comes from? Can you, can you track it back to back in the day, you know, your upbringing? Where do you think that ambition comes from? Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to my team a little bit about this yesterday, um, and it's kind of hard to put a root cause analysis on sort of, you know, what you are. I mean, your genetic makeup is hundreds of years of diverse people coming together in a unique blend that created this and then, you know, goes on to create my children as well. Um, but I, I think that, um, I, I think it comes from a feeling of, I, I think I get both positively and negatively energized by the concept of unfulfilled potential. And so when I come into teams and into transformation jobs and I see phenomenal people, um, great investments, and yet somehow like the marketing isn't generating the return or the culture's not great or um, the pieces aren't coming together. I, I sometimes joke, you know, uh, and, and actually, you know, in some of my previous more transformational roles, you know, it's kind of like you've got, you know, that more common wise quotes of, you know, um, all the right notes, not necessarily in the right order. So quite often you're coming in and the raw material there is phenomenal. It's just not been put together in a way that really maximizes the power of what it could achieve. And I think I find that quite a motivating, uh, a motivating thing that really sort of drives me. I've always enjoyed uh, playing games, you know, cards, board games, and, and so problem solving at a kind of core level with an element of competition, perhaps that also helps uh, in terms of driving the ambition. Um, but a lot of it really comes from uh, feeling that I want to do more, create more value, create a better environment. Um, and so I, I think that that at a fundamental level, um, I think as well that I have a, a curious mindset and I'm a nightmare to present to because I always have like hundreds of questions whenever anyone tries to present to me. I sort of derail them with lots and lots of questions. I'm genuinely interested and curious in why people are 
are coming to the conclusions they are, what their process was, how they're thinking about it. Because I have a deep respect for the experts that I'm lucky enough to employ. And so it's so always intrigued by the process of the recommendation. Um, and I think that that curiosity as well uh, lends to a kind of why not? Could we do something different? Could we try something else? Um, which which is also, you know, that sets a pace for the organization and for my teams. Um, but it also, I think, I hope engenders a sort of spirit of experimentation and sort of liberation uh, and lack of constraint in terms of thinking, in terms of how do you to get to where you want to be. So a long-winded answer, I, I guess the short answer is I don't really know. It just happened. <laughs> well, I, I think you dissected that rather well. Um, of course, you're sure, and it certainly comes true that you have a consulting background. There we are. Um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting that the, the three words that I think um, sort of epitomized what, what you just said, perhaps, when you, you mentioned this a few times, was the first was create, which I thought was, was great, create value. Um, the second was, of course, curiosity, um, which you mentioned then. And the phrase you, you used was process you know, getting under the skin of the process of the recommendation, I thought was kind of kind of cool and insightful. But the third thing, you didn't use this exact word, but it kind of boils down to it, is the need for curation um, and putting things in the right spaces and places. Um, and that's something that you do really well. Great. Love love that sort of succinctness there. I want to rewind just a second. Um, and you talked about the book a little bit. And one of the things that you, you passed by was that you've had some of the some of the best pieces of advice that you've had in your career have been input into the book. Now, I don't want to steal the thunder of the book, but I'd love to hear some of the best pieces of advice that perhaps you've heard that have held you in really good stead throughout your career. Yeah, and the book's got um, what I call insider insights, and I did uh, phone a friend on many occasions in order to try and kind of uh, just give some different perspectives uh, into the book and some different advice. I mean, I think that um, I've been very lucky uh, with some of my uh, bosses uh, in terms of just giving, I'm the kind of person where if you give me empowerment and give me air cover, I believe that I can do great things. And I think I was always like that, even at, as a quite a junior marketer. Um, and I was very lucky early in my career to have, um, uh, you know, s some brilliant bosses. In fact, one I was with one yesterday, he's in the book. Um, who recognized that and really kind of gave me uh, the opportunities to to push myself and extend myself. Um, and so I think that um, often it's not just the advice you get, but it's the opportunities that generous bosses give you um, that really, really make you. Um, and I try and pay that forward. So when I look at my team, um, somebody who works for me at the moment and she and I laugh about the fact that, you know, she needs to hate public speaking and I've literally been pushing her out on the stage. Again, now she's fantastic at it. You know, you have to you have to recognize the potential uh, in the people around you and provide the environment for them to flourish and thrive. Um, I, I guess uh, I guess a lot of often the best advice that you get in the moment really helps to build resilience as well, because I think it's really hard to do good marketing. Um, it's it's challenging being a leader of whatever discipline you're in. Um, and the thing that I would encourage any junior marketer to do, in addition to really trying to have a curious mindset because this this world moves so fast. Um, and you know you have to you have to kind of engage, as I said, in the process as much as the outcome and you have to kind of keep pushing yourself to challenge you know ask yourself, could we do better? Could we make it work harder? Could we? It's a faster way of doing it, whatever else it is. 
but also to build a lot of resilience because as we all know and it's super cliched you know, change is everywhere it's in every organization and honestly you know as many uh things that i've been successful in i've also failed in as well and you have to you have to just not take you know retreat into some shell or get angry or upset or depressed it's business right i mean and i often say to my teams you know my job is to give the organization the very best advice i can that's my job now if they don't take it that so that's all right it's their job right but but that never stops me from continuing to give what i believe to be the right advice and if that makes me sound like a broken record to an organization i sort of don't mind because it's still the best advice i can give um and so and often it's not actually uh what you're advising or what you're saying sometimes you just need to then adapt to the how um i also quite often use with my teams this analogy there's a writer called martin amos and in one of his books he has this brilliant analogy and bear with me on this um when he's talking about love and he's like you know when you fall in love and you know it's like the way, the way that you know that it's right is you have to answer yes to two questions is it you and is it now and sometimes the idea was the same idea as five years ago it's just now has its moment um or it's a bit ahead of its time and so you have to just wait and it will get its moment and so i'm not saying you just regurgitate these ideas of course you need to have lots of new ideas but in terms of building resilience even when you really passionately feel like something's the right thing to do you make your case sometimes you are successful sometimes you're not but if it was the right thing to do you have to kind of keep going keep at it and that was really good advice that i got given rather you know to build that resilience Mm -hmm. to commit to always doing the right thing and giving the right advice not compromising um, and just go again. <laughs> so hopefully that's helpful. Wonderful. No, very much so. I mean, the, and then also the point, uh, not to skip through too quickly about the power of a great boss um, and the opportunities that a great boss gives and uh, allowed you to, allows you to push yourself and extend yourself. Um, you, you use the word liberation, which is, well, it's not an unusual word, but it's not typically used in terms of getting the most out of your team, giving the most to your team. Um, so I'd love to know a little bit more about how do you empower without being too distant? How do you stay connected but give space? What's your sort of MO in, in terms of liberating your team? Yeah, so I, mean, I guess the first thing to say uh, before I kind of get into the advice on that is why I use that word. And actually, I talk about it a little bit in the book um, because in... B2B marketing, um, it's quite easy to get into the, you rinse and repeat the previous year's plan, right? You know, we were always at this event. We always do this thing. We always do this sponsorship. And 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 that means that uh, that does curtail your ability to really challenge whether those things are the right thing to do. Um, and often organizations are very tied to doing things the way that they've always done it because it's been very successful for them in the past. And then you get to this kind of question of does what be successful in the past help to make you successful in the future? And sometimes it does, and sometimes it's time to change. So that's why I sort of use the word liberation because it's easy in B2B marketing to get locked into a kind of quite fascinated uh, way of of seeing marketing planning. I mean, in terms of in terms of trying to uh, enable and embolden my team, um, I spend a lot of time thinking about what's the right environment that I can create. And I sometimes talk about myself as being like a fireman and a plumber, right? Putting up flyers, uh, putting out fires, and I'm unblocking things to create an environment for them to do their best work. 
And of course, each individual has a very different concept of the right environment for them, and each of them brings a different set of skills into that. So it's also about trying to understand and appreciate what is the right environment. So for example, you might have a creative person who really hates the kind of politics and the whatever. And so you have to kind of create a, a different type of environment for somebody like that than somebody who is a kind of more, I guess, in marketing strategy, who really kind of like to engage with that sort of client dynamic. So you have to be a bit thoughtful about what is this, what's the skills that this person brings, what's the environment that will bring out the best in them. Um, and then once you've created that great environment, I think you have to offer a lot of safety. So I was saying to my team the other day, you know, this organization won't let you fail. Like that won't happen. And if you come up with a brilliant, what you think is a brilliant idea and we can't make it happen because we don't think it's a good, like, I'm not going to let you go out and do something that will be a big mistake. Like it's, it's just not, that's it's a, so creating the safety that people know that they can come up with bold, cool ideas. And that if you say yes and, you, and you'll get behind it, they can feel great about that. And if, for whatever reason you have to say no, they understand that that's actually about creating a safe environment for them to continue to innovate rather than sort of trying to suppress um, their, you know, bold thinking or whatever it is. Um, I guess the, the last thing to say is that being really focused on how do you create client value? How do you differentiate? It's really tough in B2B to differentiate yourself. I'm in a category that's a very undifferentiated category. Um, and so actually that does force you to to push the envelope a little bit because otherwise you don't get attention you don't get you don't drive value for clients and if you have that as your north star and everyone knows that then that also helps them to kind of make good decisions and feel like they can um innovate in a way that's linked to the objective of what you're trying to do for the business um and giving that context i think helps um everyone make good decisions about what you put investments behind fantastic Hey everyone, just wanted to take a pause for a minute to signpost one of our incredible sponsors for the show. The Marketing Lounge Partnership are a specialist loyalty and CRM agency that works with blue chip clients on helping them engage their customers. Think about sales promotion and incentives. Think loyalty programs. Think CRM and ways to engage customers through email, social, and a range of channels. I really rate the team and think they always truly deliver. So check them out if it's of interest. Alrighty, back over to the show. Um, Antonia, I want to pick up on the, the terminology used around being in an undifferentiated space and relating that to the book where you talk a lot about the need to earn trust and loyalty within the context of your customer base. And I just want to get your take on how you see loyalty in the B2B environment. Is there such a thing amongst clients and client relationships? And perhaps any examples of where you see that being done particularly well? Of course, there is loyalty. Um, and, you know, you see uh, executives um, as they move from job to job, kind of trying to choose to work with suppliers and people that they've worked with before. And at the end of the day, um, if you're going to spend millions of dollars on transforming your business to make it fit for the future, that's a high jeopardy game right and so you want to do that with people that you trust that you know will do a good job now that doesn't mean that you won't use new people but really being able to prove to um, a potential client that you are trusted by other people like them that you can do the job that you say that you'll do it's very it's really really important and that's why things like case studies and proprietary events are really important in b2b because that kind of evidence um 
And, you know, loyalty is an interesting one. And there's been a lot of talk in B2B about account-based marketing and how you think about loyalty and then driving a share of wallets. Uh, and, and I see them as two two quite different things. Um, and often they get kind of put together into this sort of catch-all of account-based marketing. But actually, for me, they're quite two quite different um, marketing efforts with two quite different objectives um, and potential returns. Um, but there's a number of upsides to driving loyalty. First of all, I mean, all professional services companies put a huge amount of time, energy, and effort into winning work. Um, and why would you want to jeopardize that by allowing your competitors in? I think. And secondly, um, you know, most uh, professional services companies have a broad breadth of things that they would want to offer. And, uh, you know, the more loyal people are to, and the more committed they, they see you be to help, helping them create value, the more likely it is that they will buy more things from you. But loyalty also helps uh, because it drives advocacy. And advocacy, you know, when people are making this sort of much further up in their decision-making process, they do look to their peers and to their environment and try and figure out, okay, what are these leaders doing, uh, these leading companies doing, and what do we then need to emulate or, or start to think about differently? And so having advocates um, who, for you or the work that you do is incredibly important. And I, I think that really comes from loyalty. You can't ask somebody to advocate for you if they don't trust you. So, sure. So, yeah, um, super interesting perspective. Um, I'm, I'm, my feeling is we are really getting a B2B for the force here. Um, but I want to jump back to you, talk about, you had a direct report and you sort of forced them to have a speaker platform. And you are also a great speaker and you do a chunk of it. So um, I'm interested in that because many people will be sadly thinking, oh, that's not for me or that's later. Um, what benefits do you, you get from speaking and you think your team get? And, and and maybe some tips about how to get started. Yeah, well, uh, I'll tell you, the reason, the reason why I think I'm good at that, if I had to dissect that. So I studied architecture at university. Um, and when you do architecture, you have to do these terrifying things called crits where you kind of critiques, where you basically pour your heart and creative soul into um, what you think is a fantastic design. You then have to put it up on the wall with all of your peers sitting around and they get savaged by tutors. And it's honestly, I used to, I mean, I used to be physically sick before every single one of them. And, you know, in the spirit of resilience and, you know, what doesn't break you makes you strong. That was definitely, to me, that really kind of, um, that really uh, got me started. And, you know, I think, I think that, um, and I, I, again, I talk about this in the book. I mean, public speaking and being able to confidently put your point across is really fundamental, I think, at every level of marketing. And so to your point, Mark, when you're saying, oh, yes, somebody's thinking, oh, that's not for me, or maybe that's later in my career. Um, you know, for better or for worse, when an organization speaks to a marketer, they expect you to be able to present and they expect you to be able to write. And if you can't do those two things, then unfortunately, you know, that that does start to count against you in the same way that sure. if you go and talk to finance, you expect to type and people expect a degree of, of polish, eloquency, ability to make a, a great case, because that's what marketing is. And so you have to kind of live your function and you have to embody your function. Um and I think that um so much, uh, particularly in B2B, because we're kind of charting new ground all the time, um, it can feel like a bit of an act of faith for the organization to do things differently, to invest in marketing differently, to think about marketing differently from how they have before. And therefore, 
they they are putting their trust in you as as an individual as a representative of the organization and you have to be able to do that confidently um and so i would really really say that if you're nervous about it or you don't think it's for you start today and you can you can start you know pretty small right you can start by just asking a question on a town hall call you just kind of get just practice it um and the more confident that you get um i think that your success follows up well what great piece of advice there antonia and you've you've certainly taken me back to my student days and and as you say that your crits i didn't have to go through that torture as maybe you did but um Certainly, I was put on the spot a few times there. But look, speaking of um, speaking of student days and and careers, PwC is always hailed as one of the leading employers across the country. Uh, and you know, you're always leading the the league tables in in getting young people um, into the organization. And I just want to get your take as as to why do you think or what makes PwC such a great place to work. Well, I think there's a few factors to it. I mean, firstly, um, they really value um, the, I guess, the the thinking and the process that you bring as an individual. And so feeling valued as an individual, and I have to say, having worked in a more product environment and working in professional services, that is one of the nice things. And I would say that's common to many professional services firms. But I think it's writ large in PwC because the culture is so incredibly supportive. Our values are all about you know, integrity. I love our core value of care. I think that's a really interesting core value as a professional services organization. And you do feel cared for. Actually, I was a client of PwC's before I joined here. Um, and both as a client and as an employee, you do feel cared for. Um, and care, by the way, isn't for me a soft term. Actually, if, you, if as a parent, if you care, you're kind of push, pushing things as well. But um, so, so it's got a phenomenal culture. We're very lucky because uh, we are able to attract really brilliant talent. And the people here are very, very clever, but also just pra- very pragmatic and very collaborative. And so um, I think that that creates, uh, I was talking a little bit before about creating a great environment. I think that creates a really good environment for people, talented people to flourish. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of flexibility. So you mentioned in the uh, intro, there's a, teacher strike today so I'm at home I was supposed to be in the office there's no kind of com- comment about that you know people can work uh you know around the the, the invariable uh challenges of having a life outside work um so all of those things but then but then on the other side I would also say that um because of the breadth of the things that we do because of the nature of the problems that we're solving for clients it's intellectually interesting yeah. And it also offers a lot of diversity in terms of career. And I remember somebody once saying to me, you know, it's it's a bit like a, a playground. You don't want to just play on the swings. Right? There's lots of things that you can do and we're in a company like PwC, which means that you can have a number of different careers here. Um, and I think that that's extremely motivating for my team. Um, and then, of course, you know, we invest in training and we commit to people uh, progressing. So interesting work, a, a really interesting and cult, and great culture, um, and a commitment to individuals in the round, not just in work. Fantastic. That um, metaphor to a playground is a lovely one. Actually, Love um, again, you've got you know you, you're pretty good at sort of bringing things to a point of crystal clarity. And um, I'm in, I'm intrigued though. It's uh, it all sounds so great. But of course, of course, of course, you know, life is not a straight line, career is not a straight line. So what are some of the 
the stumbling blocks that maybe have happened along the way that you've learned from that actually in the rearview mirror you wouldn't you wouldn't want not to have not done because they've given you great learnings but they haven't been really, they haven't been comfortable at the time. I mean, I think I, I mean, there's there's so many <laughs> to rack my brains for them, but you know, because that's life and they happen you know, on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, decadely basis, right? I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, I, I think that um, staying too long in a bad environment for you is one thing that I would really recommend that people are thoughtful about. And actually, often when I mentor people and they're not happy at work, that's kind of what's happened. There's something's happened within the organizational dynamic that's, you know, whether it's a new boss or a different type of whatever it is um and and that has a really corrosive effect on your well-being and i think as soon as your you have a something has a corrosive effect on your well-being the thing that i see and the thing that's happened to me is it starts to really affect your confidence and you know, we were talking a little bit before about the power of confidence and the power of public speaking um and if you start to lose your confidence i think that you really you lose something really very special and very important and particularly in marketing it's hard to not be confident and so so i've definitely had um experiences where i probably stayed a little bit too long in a job and i did that for reasons that i thought were good at the time but actually you know there are there are a couple of roles where i go mm, I, pro I probably if i could have my time again i might have left 3 months earlier or whatever a year earlier so, so there's that, um, and I think that that's worth thinking about on a regular basis. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, of course, you know, sometimes you embark on marketing campaigns or programs and they don't perform in the way that you want them to perform. Um, and there, what I think I've learned over time is you, you've got to try and take what it, whatever learning you can from it. And actually, often, the reason why something doesn't work can be very interesting and informative as well. The question then is knowing when to quit, right? <laughs> Keep plugging away at it. I'm hoping that it will get better um, and knowing when to just, you know, call it a day. And that can be uh, quite a hard conversation to have with an organization, particularly if you've spent quite a long time convincing them to do something and then you have to kind of go back and go, actually, uh, we got it wrong. And so, again, this goes back to the point about resilience. I've had to do that a number of times. It's always embarrassing. It's quite hard. Um, but actually, what I've also learned from that is ultimately the organization respects you for being able to do that because it's not perfect. But but that's that's a that's a tough one, I think. Um, I've definitely made lots and lots of leadership mistakes. I'm sure, uh, you know, uh, you probably both of you have the same thing, right? I mean, you get 360 feedback and there are times when, you know, I wasn't my best self in a conversation. I wasn't my best self in a meeting. Um, and so what I've learned from that is to try and identify what, what are the types of environments that make me not my best self. And then I try and put a bit of a buffer between that, that type of engagement and then what I need to do next with my team so that I'm not going straight from a kind of quite brutal, I don't know, finance meeting into trying to have a mentoring conversation with a junior person, right? So, so try and kind of plan as much as I can so that I, 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 I increase my chances of being as good as I can be. But of course, you know, leadership is difficult and highly subjective and, you know, you, you put, you give it your, your best, but you know, you're learning as a leader all the time as well. Um, and so being able to 
ask for the feedback a lot. I ask for lots of feedback. I ask for a lot of feedback from my leadership team, how I can improve. I ask for advice for people who are joining my team um, because it's it's hard to look at yourself dispassionately and you do need to do that. But again, that's, that's, that's quite a vulnerable thing to do. Um, and you um, and you shouldn't ask for advice if you're not going to take it. So uh, that was also kind of adds to a degree of vulnerability in that as well. So look, I've I've made I've made a ton of mistakes. Of course, I made mistakes. Um, but um, you you have to you know pick up and go again. And you know you can't you can't be defeated. And you know go back to what I was saying before. If you lose your confidence, you really lose your magic. And so. Uh, whatever you need to do to regain and restore that confidence, whatever that takes, uh, that's what you need to do. Um, whether that's going for a run, talking to a friend over a glass of wine or leaving a job, that's what you have to do. So that, that would be my advice for uh, anyone listening to this. So Jodi, I, I want to pick up um, on the thought around, now you're clearly, you sit around a, a professional boardroom table, um, whether it be internally, whether it be with, you know, helping clients and the such like. And B and B to C marketers typically, um, I guess, uh, sort of uh, sometimes kind of wonder about their legitimacy in the boardroom, and I wonder if it's the same in the context of B two B marketing um, and a marketer's role within the context for the boardroom. So in B two B marketing, there's a huge variance, I would say, in terms of how marketing is perceived in the organisation. So even the idea of a marketer being in a boardroom can't be taken for granted. Or in some organizations, you see marketing either reporting into sales and it's sales in the boardroom or marketing reporting into communications, communications being in the boardroom. Um, and so it's not a given that if you're in B2B marketing, you're in a boardroom. So I think that says something in its own right. Um, I think if you are there then in B2B marketing, you're kind of there for a reason. And so, uh, and, it, and it probably speaks to a reasonably enlightened organization who uh, thinks that marketing has something important and helpful to contribute to the conversation. Um, so so I'm lucky in terms of being able to be in that position and it says something actually about the organization. And one of the things I always ask uh, when, and have always asked actually when people approach me for jobs is, well, is marketing? have they got a seat or have they not because it actually says quite a lot about uh, whether the organization uh, values and treats marketing in a way that I, I would want it to be treated um you know you it is taken of course it is taken seriously by progressive uh, companies uh, being on around the board um I I do think that marketing sometimes brings a, a very different perspective from the normal kind of boardroom dynamics. Um, and sometimes uh, that really, really helps to move the thinking forward, which is phenomenal. And so I think that um, I applaud it. I think it's great when you have marketing around the table, um, but it's not a given in B2B marketing at all. And in fact, I would say that there are lots of organizations that think marketing is a kind of cost center, nice to have. They're the guys that do the you know, golf days and goodie bags. And that's pretty old fashioned view of marketing, but I definitely speak to CMOs still who are in that kind of environment. So we have come towards the end. I saw sitting this before. We might talk about generative AI. I mean, it is the talk of the town. So this is going to be the last question to get a point of view. I, I, I watched a video. The guys who did the social dilemma um, did a video in March um, about what's going on, including things like uh, um, the fact the fact that it's quite possible to decode thoughts and dreams, certainly to, to 
perceive what people are seeing and feeling. Um, and uh, uh, generative AI, um, by accident, became research level chemistry sort of uh, standard, and you know c- could certainly uh, help people to create nerve gas. And all. so there's all these sort of scaremongering and so on. I suppose the question, and I, I'm sure that PwC have a strong position on this. What, what role is AI playing today and what role will AI play in the future um, in helping businesses to achieve uh, th- their potential? A timely question. We've just No small question. Yeah, timely question. <laughs> We've actually just announced a billion-dollar investment into generative AI, so it's kind of a, an interesting timing for us. Um, I mean, I, I, let me take a kind of more marketing view on it versus a sort of PwC point of view on it because we, like lots of companies, are still kind of forming what we think and how we think about it um, but I'll, I'll give you a marketing perspective so i i think about it in three different ways across uh, the the portfolio that i have from a technology perspective um actually being able to curate at scale content at scale using ai i think is phenomenal i've been saying for about 10 years that i wish our navigation bars could go away on our .com like we should be able to serve up a brilliant experience and I always enjoyed those choose your own adventure uh, books when I was a child. You should be able to kind of find your way through the information. And I think AI is going to be a really interesting uh, and important way to do that. When I think about content, um, at the moment, what AI is really good at is telling you what to do, but not how to do it. And even if you ask AI a question about how, they'll tell you what to do. Um, and so when you think about professional services, um, really the, the whole point of professional services is in the how. It does push you to talk to have a different type of content because if your content is mostly research based, for example, that becomes commoditized almost the minute you know it's got a moment of differentiation and then it's commoditized almost immediately. So it's really in the how um, that you're going to uh, to be able to say something that's interesting and enduring over time. I think it'll also be again from a content perspective. It'd be interesting to see there's this sort of concept of AI driving a high degree of innovation. However, if you try and innovate using AI, they're only going to tell you what already happens in the world. And so that space between getting a kind of mass view of what's going on and true innovation, I think it's quite an interesting one that we'll all be exploring as well. And then from a brand perspective, um, it's quite interesting. So if I think about PwC, for example, we have had part of our brand guidelines is that for example, our, our images should be truthful. We're a high trust organization and we shouldn't manipulate images. Now suddenly you're kind of in a world where you can do really cool stuff with video and with imagery um, generated through AI. And on, on so many incredible, like I saw one which was um, AI doing different types of sign, sign language for different languages on the same text. I mean, amazing for accessibility, amazing for relevance, um, amazing way of being able to bring our messages to life in a new way. But, you know, some really quite deep philosophical discussions that we're going to have to have about where do we do that? How do we do that? What does that mean uh, for our brand when we're such a high trust brand? So, you know, I talked about having a curious mindset. I'm very excited, very curious about AI. Um, yeah, there there are always every time there's a big technology advance, there are always people who are worried about it. That's natural. Um, but actually, we've had so much technology advancement over the last few years. Um, and in the main, I'm a I, I'm a, an enjoyer and a believer in tech. And I, I kind of in the main think that our lives get better the more technology we have in it. So I I look at one of the opportunities with AI with that kind of positive intent. Um, and I hope that we're able to 
to do really great things with it. That's awesome. Great, great way to end. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, it's um, very, very characteristic of you that you'd answer the question that way, that there's an opportunity to have. But be, be mindful in the same sense. Well, so tough job for me to just do a little bit of a bow on things to recap some of the key learnings. And um, as I said, I think this has been a, a tour de force in B2B and busting a few myths along the way. And, and I think your, your book does fill a gap. So we're very happy to be a platform for that. Hmm. Um, so what else did we talk about? We talked about ambition, um, that unfulfilled ambition when gets your, your goat. And you like to create a why not environment that encourages experimentation and liberation, using the word very deliberately um, and to avoid the rinse and repeat. And, and you talked about being a fireman and a bummer, really an enabler to create the right environment and to create safety. Um, you also talked a lot about uh, speaking and the crits of doing architecture. We didn't get into how do you get from architecture to marketing, but anyway, that's that's for another day. Um, but it's so crucial to get your point across and start today and practice builds confidence. Great to get an insight into uh, PwC itself. And, and what was really interesting was to talk about a culture of care. The reason being, Richie had a pop at three C's. I came up with a different three C's for you, actually, Antonio. <laughs> and here, here we go. That you're, you're confident, assured, confident, not in an arrogant way, just confident in yourself and in your thoughts and views. Uh, you bring clarity you know, in all the way you've talked today and, you know, a clarity of purpose, a clarity of messaging. Uh, and then also, I said, care, because of the way you talked about the nurturance and liberation of your team being fireman and the plumber. So that, anyway, there's my three C's. And um, we also heard a little bit about some of your setbacks. And I love this bit. Staying too long in the wrong environment will be have a corrosive effect on your well-being and has an impact on your confidence. Um, so I think that's a message to anybody who kind of knows instinctively they're in the wrong environment and um, don't, don't, to not be a victim to that. Not always easy to extricate, but, but great advice. Um, in the boardroom, from a B2B point of view, uh, Bring a different perspective there for a specific reason, and um, but don't always have a seat. And that's not just a B two B thing. Clearly, that's a B two C thing as well. Um, and then we talked a bit about AI at the end, and uh, a, a lovely positive view. I mean, the jury's out, like, but and, and it's a holding the tail of the tiger. This one, um, but but good to get that perspective. And um, but I'm going to end on this thing about um, the power of a great boss. A great boss will allow you to push yourself, extend yourself, will be generous, will allow you to flourish and thrive and, and I just have a sense it must be great working for you actually I think you'd be a really good boss most people leave a company because they don't like their boss um, and you said my job is to give the very best advice what a lovely in a nutshell and um, the business may not take it it may not be right and it may not be right now but what a lovely way of framing the simplicity of, of leadership and being a boss so I'm telling you it's been brilliant to have you on uh, really grateful to give your thoughts and insights and I know they'll be tremendously useful to many people listening thank you again well, thank you. Thank you, you. you promised me I'd have a, an enjoyable time and I really have. So thank you both very much. Really enjoyed it.